This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you and the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have on one of the greatest Jews to ever walk the Twitter sphere, a person so important that he even came to the attention of such prominent, high-quality, and obviously well-adjusted Twitter users like the Snake69, who called our guest today a filthy Zionazi liar. Uh, he's a former writer for Tablet Magazine, currently a writer at The Atlantic, where he also launched the immensely awesome and popular newsletter Deep Shtetl, to which I'm a proud paid subscriber. And he's also a uh, recording artist who just dropped the awesome some new album, Az Yashir, Songs for Shabbos. He's the man, the myth, the legend himself. Yair Rosenberg is here, and we're going to talk about culture, faith, politics, and tons of good stuff. But first, uh, let's set this bad boy up. So this week, when this episode drops, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as described in the book of Leviticus, chapters 16 and 23 and elsewhere. And in the liturgy, both on the day itself, as well as on the days leading up to Yom Kippur, uh, one biblical verse that's become customary to recite again and again in a variety of contexts is one from the very end of the book of Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Now, that last phrase, renew our days as of old, in Hebrew is chadesh yamenu kekedem. And the word kedem can mean both as of old, but out of context, it can also mean east, as in the direction. And in fact, there's this very ancient Jewish homiletical tradition to actually adopt that translation, such that the end of the verse actually means renew our days as they were when we were in the East. Now, what would that mean exactly? When were we in the East? Well, as this ancient tradition points out, the Bible describes human beings as settling in Kedem, the East, after they've been expelled from the Garden of Eden. So as in the expression East of Eden. So what humanity absolutely begs God for, according to this tradition, is that he should restore us not to the Garden of Eden, but to the first few moments after the fall from paradise. But why on earth would we want that? Uh, my grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb of blessed memory, offered an uh, extraordinary answer. He noted that human beings have a tendency to yearn for good things to happen automatically, like to win the lottery, to accomplish some great educational or engineering discovery without putting in the, you know, the painstaking work to actually make such a discovery. And what often accompanies these fantasies is an equally fantastical notion of the past. We often like to remember our past as having been much easier and less complex than it was. So like think of the sad kind of <laughs> like pathetic sounding protagonist in the song Glory Days by Springsteen or think of Calvin's dad and Calvin and Hobbes when he says, you know, the halcyon days of our youth are awarded retroactively once you're all grown up, right? So it's a perfect description of the Garden of Eden. We remember it as a paradise, but in reality, it was a thicket of temptation. Humans are clearly bored there. They bring divine curses upon themselves. And by the end of their time there, it's not clear that Adam and Eve actually even like each other. They seem to come to deeply resent each other. And it was only once God finally, mercifully, throws the damn towel in the immortal words of Duke Evers from Rocky IV and removes Adam and Eve from the garden that they begin to build a family, that they begin to truly act as partners, as people who needed each other, and they could build the human race together. So why does the verse fondly remember not the garden itself, but the moments right after we left the garden or were expelled from the garden? Well, because we're not looking for a cheap high. 
What we're praying for, in my grandfather's words, is that God give us the courage to face life east of Eden, to throw ourselves into the fray for a fuller and finer life, to forge a new world, indeed a new paradise, after we were expelled from or pulled ourselves out of the Eden we never paid for or fought for. There's a nobility in working to make the best out of the messiness of the human condition, rather than just inheriting a simple paradise that we didn't do anything to deserve. And this is probably the most important civilizational contribution, or certainly one of them, of the Hebrew Bible. The idea that piety means not seeking to escape this world for a better ethereal or even imaginary one, but rather rolling up our sleeves and doing the work in partnership with God to improve this one. And if I try to come up with people who not only write and think extremely insightfully about what it means to act virtuously in a messy, dirty, complex world, but someone who actually rolls up their sleeves and does the work of bringing light to the world, our guest today is near the very top of that list. He's one of the most incisive writers of the Atlantic, which is astonishing given the murderer's row they've assembled there. But he's also the proprietor of the excellent Deep Shtetl newsletter, which demystifies how politics, culture, and religion shape society. So basically everything that's in the sweet spot of this podcast is the incredible Yair Rosenberg. Yair, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here, Yair. Okay, so one component of your like extremely awesome rise to prominence has been your coverage of anti-Semitism. Like, obviously, it's, you know, unsettling, very dangerous rise in recent years, but also just, like, explaining it to lay people, like, what it is and how it works. And I feel like for most people who spend a lot of time, professionally or otherwise, deep diving in anti-Semitism, the world starts to look pretty bleak. And while this kind of reporting, you know, obviously serves a really crucial purpose— it can introduce some serious distortions into how a person conceives of Jewishness and Jewish culture as a whole. So, as you well know, the legendary Jewish historian Sela Barone coined a term for this problem, the lachrymose conception of Jewish history, right? Lachrymose meaning tearful or tear-stained. So Barone pointed out that there's this tendency to tell the story of Jewish history as just like a series of persecutions and disasters, which he saw as ignoring both the great you know, spiritual intellectual triumphs of Jewish history, and it denies Jewish people a sense of agency in history. So one thing I've always really admired about you and your work is that while you're one of the top journalistic experts on anti-Semitism in the world, frankly, you're also someone who actively contributes to the joys of contemporary Jewish culture in a really serious way, especially through music. So how do you balance those two parts of your life and interests, and how do you avoid becoming a captive of the lachrymose conception of Jewish history? That's a great question, and it shows that uh, you've been reading the newsletter carefully, because in my head, I sort of have a ratio in there of how much I write about bad things happening to Jews and what I, how much I write about constructive, fascinating, inspiring, or just you know plain interesting things that Jews are doing or have done. Um, and if the ratio gets out of whack, and if I feel like I'm trending towards writing too much uh, about anti-Semitism, I know I've done something wrong, and I usually know that because I am feeling much more depressed than I should. And in fact, the thing that keeps me going, it's important that someone writes about anti-Semitism in a serious way. It's important that it be explained properly uh, to wider audiences. But it can't be the whole of anybody's work. I mean, I think it would it would seriously harm anyone who spent all their time in that sort of fever swamp. Uh, the things that remind me as to why I do that work in the first place, why being Jewish is worth celebrating and protecting and valuing, is all the other stuff I write about, 
right? Whether it's, you know, the translation of Harry Potter into Yiddish, right? Or explaining to people uh, the different, the controversy over how to translate Pesach or Passover. One of my favorites. I I figured you would enjoy that one. And that's the sort of piece, this is a piece in which I literally pull out some very ancient texts, Midrashim, grammarians, uh, writing in multiple languages who debate what uh, the word Pesach, which we popularly translate as Passover, actually means because a lot of ancient Jewish translators didn't understand Passover as that. It's the wrong holiday season to talk about that, but you're welcome to look it up. Uh, but, you know, credit to the Atlantic. They're willing to publish something like that. And the thing is that piece did extremely well, right? Because it talked about something, not, you know, again, nasty things being done to Jews, right? But this thing that the Jews, you know, experienced and then sort of shared with the world, which was the experience of the Exodus and the sorts of ways that Jews themselves understood it. Um, So to me, it's really, really important. Um, And that's, you mentioned the music in this context, the music, the Jewish music that I compose and sing, and that's absolutely a part of it. It keeps me sane. It keeps me grounded. It's really important that when you cover darker sides of humanity, that you remind yourself what the humanity is that you're fighting for in the first place. Um, And I'm surely not the only person who's had this experience. I know many colleagues in journalism cover other dark aspects uh, of our society, right? Not particularly anti-Semitism, and they too, right, have to work on this sort of balance. Otherwise, you will burn out. Right. And uh, it, it will distort your ability to see the world as it actually is. And, you know, as, as Salo Baron said, you can't look at Jewish history that way because then you're going to miss a tremendous amount. Of it. I actually was thinking specifically about that essay that you wrote on the biblical Hebrew word Pasach, right, which usually is translated as Passover. When I was thinking about the that question, because it, it strikes me like if you're a real consumer, as I am on a regular every time you put something out, I'm reading it is you have this this mix of essays with like the broadest possible appeal. Like what happens if Trump runs in 2024? Like what's Biden's next move? And this like extreme cultural specificity, which is totally my jam. Like that's my jam, modulating between those two extremes. But one question that I get all the time, especially as, you know, I do these like why read the Bible in Hebrew Twitter threads and and as those have kind of, you know, taken off a little bit. One question I get all the time is how do you choose? Right. Like, how do you choose which super specific thing you're going to focus on? And if whether it's like how different ancient translators translate that biblical Hebrew word that usually gets, you know, translated as Passover or whether it's like Jewish acapella music, like how do you choose the cultural specificity? What does that thought process look like in your mind? It's really the same thought process that goes to all of my pieces, which is that at any given point, I have many, many ideas that have been swimming around in my head for different periods of time, sometimes many years. And at a certain point, one of them sort of pops up and says, "Okay, I'm ready right? I've got all the pieces and then it just sort of writes itself, right? And if I'm having trouble doing that, if it's not writing itself, then it's not ready. Um, and that's how I know. Um, and so there's always like, there's going to be a piece that I'm hoping to write uh, after we speak, uh, which will be related to Yom Kippur and forgiveness in Judaism and online culture and social media. And that's a piece that I've been working on for years. And frankly, I'm not entirely sure it's ready yet, but you know, at a certain point you do have to say, okay, it's 90% ready and it's better that the world gets the 90% than you sit on it until it's perfect because I'll always have a chance to write a new version of that or to iterate on those themes. You understand, as a rabbi, rabbis give the same sermon 25 times, but each time it gets better, it gets deeper, it's informed by the responses that you receive and the life experiences you have. And so that is how my ideas sort of mature. 
And at a certain point, they're ready uh, to go out there. And usually you can tell because if you do it right, those pieces actually succeed. You might have thought that a piece about the translation of the word Passover in the Atlantic would be very interesting to the subset of readers like the Ari Lambs of the world. In fact, <laughs> it was one of my more successful newsletters that I've written in the last year. Um, and that's despite the fact that there are entire lines of Hebrew in it. It's not just, I had the option, they let me do whatever I want. Uh, I could have just done English translations all the way through and explained the whole thing without ever even putting the Hebrew letters in, which might intimidate or scare somebody. But instead, I put the Hebrew and then I translate and I tell you what you should pay attention to. And I phonetically explain certain words. And, you know, readers, if you give people space, right, to expand their horizons, they often do. Sometimes I think we journalists fall into the trap of sort of talking down to our audience or underestimating their ability to understand or grapple with complicated questions or ideas. And my dad, who is uh, both a rabbi and a junior high educator, has always said that, you know, children expand uh, to fill the space that you give them. Um, And it's not really just true of children, it's true of people. And so I try to give my readers more space, right, than sometimes they might find elsewhere. And I found that there's a lot of people who actually want that. Um, And so that could be about Passover. It can be about Jewish acapella music. It can also just be about, I write about more off the beat subjects, but my job is to explain to you why they matter. Right. And why that actually is more important than you thought. And if you do that enough, you build a certain amount of trust. My readers know now that when they get an email from me, even if the subject is strange, right, that there's a reason I'm telling them to pay attention to this. And like that, that to me is the goal. Right. And sometimes a piece might be ready in content, but I don't know yet how to get people to like realize it matters. Um, and that's that's where I'm still, you know, so that's what I'm struggling. And when I'm when I finished and I've jumped from that point of I have a good idea to I have a good idea how to get people to care about it, right? That's that's the sweet spot. I'll tell you this in a much more mundane way. I used to, you know, tell people about, you know, you're, you're in college and people would ask you, you know, what classes are you taking and do you like them? Um, and I was still having that conversation as one does early in the term at one point in the college hill or something at a meal. And I started telling how much I like this class and this class and this class. And then somebody like, you know, leans over one of my roommates and says, the thing you have to understand is that yeah, ear likes all of his classes right? And they're not nearly as good as he says they are. <laughs> and I said, well, that's because I always find what is interesting. What is the thing that is relevant to me that is, and when I speak to a person about the class, I tell them about the thing I think they'd be most interested in the class, which can mislead them into thinking that that's the entirety of the class, right? But I'm usually pretty good at understanding what an audience is interested in and finding ways to say, well, you care about this? Well, then you will care about this thing that you might not have thought you cared about. Um, and I think there are many more of those connections than we would. This gives me so much insight into why I personally am so attracted to your to your writing, because that's ex- literally exactly how I approach everything. That's my entire worldview summed up. And I love the idea of of letting an idea bubble up or almost, you know, you're sort of almost putting yourself at the at the service of the ideas that you have and letting them kind of raise. It, it reminds me. <laughs> Lil Wayne did a did an amazing interview, I think pretty recently, where someone asked me, you know, like you've written like hundreds of songs. How's it even possible? And he goes, I haven't written a single song. He says, I just get in front of a mic and I talk about what's interesting and what's interesting to me. And he has this wonderful turn of phrase, as you would expect from someone as lyrically gifted as him. He has this wonderful turn of phrase where he says, you know, if I have two words in my head that have been rhyming just for too long and I haven't been in front of a mic. I like I just need to get in front of a mic because they've been rhyming for too long. And they just kind of come out. It's such a beautiful piece of imagery. I want to talk briefly, before we get into some other stuff, I want to talk briefly about Jewish acapella or not Jewish acapella. There's this, just fortuitously, we didn't plan this, but there's a moment right now for Orthodox Jewish pop music. And that is the Miami Boys Choir. So unless you're living under a rock or like 
TikTok just didn't bless your For You page with this particular goodness. There's this Orthodox Jewish pop choir for boys was formed in like the 70s, and it's been going on for 40 something years. And they recruit these like young kids from about like, I don't know, 9, 10 to 14, 15. And they've just been putting out this, these like this music with like snazzy guitar hooks and like choreography and glittery vests and stuff for a long time. And TikTok kind of discovered a video of this popping off. And it has, at this point, the Miami Boys Choir hashtag on TikTok has like over 100 million views. What do you make of the success of this? And does it signify anything? Like I have such hot takes on this, but does it signify anything? Yeah, there are like more serious and less serious things one could say about it. But I do think uh, as someone who does uh, produce, you know, their own Jewish music, which we then send out into the world and I share it in my newsletter and most of my readers, remember, are not Jewish, but I'm sharing this Jewish music anyway. And I'll often explain the story behind it. I think people undervalue, under expect uh, how much people will take interest in music outside their own culture. hundred million percent. K-pop songs go, you know, go viral in America. You know, people just don't realize that like people are open to that. I am myself influenced heavily by Celtic music, by Irish folk music, right? The, these are, you know, songs that come from outside of my personal experience, outside of my culture. It's not my history, right? But I find the stories, I find the melodies and the styles beautiful. I have been influenced by... Um, Christian acapella groups, um, which of course is a very burgeoning genre uh, because acapella music in general uh, originates as church music. That's literally what acapella means, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's like in a chapel. Yeah, in a chapel. And so all of these things have spoke to me before I ever put any music out myself. And I don't think I'm that unique. And of course, when I do put out my music, I discover there are plenty of people who appreciate it who are not Jewish at all, right? And never heard these particular words and never necessarily heard this particular style. Uh, so people are somewhat shocked to discover that uh, something like the Miami Boys Choir can go viral among people who never even really met probably a Jew or even an Orthodox Jew, but it doesn't surprise me. And I think it's, it's you know, I read a lot about the darker sides of social media and the downsides uh, of social media in our society and how we might uh, circumvent them. But there, this is an, you know, a clear example of the good that social media does, because if you didn't have TikTok, this would never have happened. And it's not because people wouldn't have appreciated the music and wouldn't have made the connection and it wouldn't have and wouldn't have been open to sort of seeing these Orthodox Jews who might otherwise seem foreign as as people who are, you know, fellow uh, appreciators of this sort of style of music. Right. And this sort of culture, it's that they would never have had the chance. Right. The Internet gave them the chance. Um, social media gave them a chance. And so I think that's pretty cool. And I think it's, uh, it's you know, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, there's so many things going on on social media at every point that are there just to depress you or it seems like it. And so something like this reminds you, you know, it's not all, right? Again, don't just take the lacrimose view of, uh, of social media. I agree. I thought it was extremely awesome. And one thing, I, I listen, I went fully down this rabbit hole, just like watching random duets, like till three in the morning. One thing I was so struck by that at a certain point I started like scrolling pretty deep down into comment sections on like random videos just to confirm or otherwise or rebut the working hypothesis here. But one thing that has been remarkable to me is that over the course of like a hundred million views, if there is like a fourth law of thermodynamics, it's that the longer an internet phenomenon goes on and well before a hundred million views on anything, if you get past like a thousand views, the odds of this veering towards anti-Semitism are extremely high. And yet in this case, I have, if there has been like an anti-Semitic take, maybe there's been a commenter here that I've missed, but I have seen almost nothing anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, anti-whatever. Like I've seen nothing on this whole phenomenon. And TikTok is, you know, 
typically a place where that stuff is tolerated or or at least, it, you know, it, it rears its head. I have some theories, but do you have a theory of why this has not been infected by anti-Semitism? That seem, figuring out why would seem to be like the holy grail of contemporary Jewish activism today. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't have any great insights because I, I would I would want to be honest and say that uh, of all the social media platforms out there, the one that I have the least familiarity with was TikTok, and I've exposed myself as an old as uh, by doing this. Um, but uh, you know, it's okay because you know the TikTok kids they're going to be the olds in like two and a half years. You know, so I, I don't actually know. I mean, I spend a little time here and there on TikTok, but I can't tell you how that sort of works. Um, I also didn't see that. And you do usually see that on any internet phenomenon involving Jews. Someone feels the need to redirect the conversation towards Israel, right? Forget, you know, making anti-Semitic comments because the people are Orthodox Jews that look like it. You know, I do wonder if there's an element here of uh, the crossover between like K-pop fandom and Jewish uh, pop fandom. And that K-pop fandom is all about celebrating certain types of things and certain types of videos. And, and sort of TikTok knew what to do when they found this. Uh, and they sort of, and the people who are doing this are the people who do the same things to sort of TikTok videos and various K-pop stars and other music stars. And so once you're in that idiom, these other things don't even make sense, right? That is not who is touching these videos. That is not who's having this conversation. Uh, and so it sort of circumvented a lot of that stuff because it just went straight into stand culture. Uh, but this is, you know, right. me armchair psychologizing about a platform that I will tell you, I admittedly is I am least expert in compared to the others. One of the most common questions that I get from non-Jewish followers on Twitter or non-Jewish listeners to the podcast, and by the way, if you've asked me this kind of question, don't stop. It's an amazing question, and I love that you're comfortable asking. It's not at all offensive. But one of the most common questions that I get is some version of, is Judaism or are Jews or is Jewishness, does it have racial aspects? Like, are Jews a race? How do you deal with that kind of question? I'm sure you get it far more often than most people. I've written a piece that's called Our Jews Are Race. This, this is how you deal with it, because then you write it, and then you can just send the link to somebody, and you've solved it, right? <laughs> Obviously. I'm surprised I still get questions about it now. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly failed. Um, it's actually the most successful newsletter I've ever written um, in terms of you know traffic. So that will tell you exactly as you said, that this is a very, very vexing topic, one that a lot of people have questions about. The first thing to do is like what you just did is to validate the question because there are very obvious incongruities that people asking this question are picking up. Because they look at Jews and they say, well, Jews are, are a religion, right? Just like, you know, Christianity or Islam. But then I met my, you know, this Jewish person or this famous Jewish person like Albert Einstein, and they weren't a religious Jew and they didn't consider themselves a believer in a uh, monotheistic particularist God. They were, they had a more general conception of a sort of uh, detached, you know, maybe clockmaker uh, deity, but didn't like consider themselves a religious observant Jew. Uh, Albert Einstein, though, of course, did consider himself a proud Jew. So that's very confusing, right? It's, you know, non-religiously observant, right? You'll meet people who are atheists, uh, who proudly identify as Jews, right? And not only that, they do Jewish rituals. They'll do their Passover Seder. They'll fast on Yom Kippur, right? Very befuddling. So it doesn't seem like it's fully a religion. Uh, but then if you say, oh, it's just, you know, sort of a, a cultural ethnic practice, we're also saying it's cultural practices. Well, there are some people, right, who don't partake in, like, they've never watched Seinfeld and they, they aren't part, like, they're, they're Hasidic Jews in New Square and New York and they don't have really any connections to a lot of these things that people consider Jewish cultural stuff. Um, and if you say it's a, uh, 
if you say it's a race or an ethnicity, well, that's kind of weird because I cannot convert uh, to being Asian. I just never will be able to do it. But you, listening to this podcast, if you're not Jewish, can convert to being Jewish. Um, so that doesn't work as a race. So it doesn't scan as a race quite. It doesn't quite scan as a culture. It doesn't quite scan as a religion. It has parts of all of these things, just as it has parts of nationality, right? You know, there are many Jews who are Israelis who identify as part of a Jewish nation. There are people outside of Israel who think that I'm part of the Jewish people. I may be a very proud member of my current country. I have no plans to leave, right? But I also consider Judaism a nationality. And then there are other people who very strongly believe that there's no such thing as a Jewish nation and don't identify with Judaism as a nationality. So again, every box you try to apply to it doesn't seem to work. And so the person asking the question is picking up on this and are genuinely confused. Um, and the reason they're confused is because the Western categories that we have that are relatively recent um, post-date Jews, right? The Jews predate all of these categories, all of these words that I've just used. Um, the Jews were around before you had any of this language. And what's happened since then is as Jews are a minority in societies uh, that are not Jewish uh, and that use these terms is that they've attempted to shove Jews into these boxes, but it doesn't really fit right? Because Judaism predates this and it doesn't actually make any sense. So if you had to describe what Jews are, uh, people try to use terms like a tribe, right? There's like things like that. I find, you know, because tribe has specific connotations in terms of indigenous people and also in terms of uh, sometimes people see it as uh, pejorative today. You're tribal, right? You're closed off, right? So I, while academics and wise people have used this term, I don't. I prefer to think of it as a family into which people can get adopted, right? Which explains how people become part of it, even if they were not born into it. And I think that that sort of terminology, I think I heard that first from Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, uh, but don't uh, hold me to that, is a useful way to understand that Judaism is sort of a family. Sometimes people have called Jews a civilization. Again, sort of complicated. People can get confused by it. Um, has a lot of intellectual backing behind it. I would use the term family, but the point is the words that people tend to try to apply don't work. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Um, and you have to sort of go back to more basic building blocks like the family to understand what Jews actually are. Uh, so yes, they have racial components, they have religious components, they have ethnic components and so on, uh, but they are not any one of those things. Speaking of the civilizational elements of Judaism, because I love that, and I love the the metaphor of family, but even speaking about Judaism as a familial phenomenon only highlights further the basic point that you're making, which is that in many ways, Judaism is the screw that doesn't fit in the West and elsewhere, but particularly in the West. One thing that this raises for me is when we think about discourse around anti-Semitism, part of the haggling around the definition is something to do with disproportionate focus on Israel. Like if you're obsessed with Israel, um, with the state of Israel, the land of Israel, so this often raises a red flag. And I get what this part of the definition is going for, and I even agree with it in many respects. But on the whole, analytically speaking, I, I wonder if we miss something here. Meaning one way to tell the story about disproportionate focus on Israel or on the Holy Land or what have you is that Judaism actually is by definition and design, quite a peculiar phenomenon. And both descriptively, the Holy Land is just the geographical origin point and the conceptual and spiritual origin point of many of humanity's greatest, and certainly, you know, even if you want to debate the value judgment, most powerful ideas, it's that tiny region has shaped the globe more decisively than possibly, probably any other region on Earth. It's for 
most of humanity, just numerically speaking, it's like the centripetal spiritual force. And prescriptively, I think the Bible sort of wants to position either the land of Israel or the people who are charged with deserving a place in the land of Israel, not owning it, but deserving a place in it, are they're charged with operating that way and being that way in history. So would it be possible to sort of retell the story of disproportionate focus on Israel and just say, yeah, actually, like, that's baked into the civilizational role that Jews are going to play in society, and there are bad, part, there are bad parts that we have to defend against, but there are also good parts to that. Like, it, it, it battles within me against the desire to say, hey, just treat us normally. Like, treat us like we're normal. So I, those two desires kind of war within me, but how do you think about that kind of tension? Well, there's a there's an interesting conflict here between perhaps a uh, theological religious lens that you can bring to this issue and a more secular lens. Uh, I remember a rabbi once uh, saying to me, like, you know, if you look at the front page of the New York Times more often than not, you'll find uh, some article about Israel. People will complain about whatever, uh, you know, the front page of X, Y, or Z important newspaper is saying about Israel. But he said, if you think about it logically, there's no reason that Jews should even be there. They're this tiny state the size of New Jersey. They don't actually matter that much in the grand scheme of geopolitics. And yet people are so obsessed with it, that would suggest that there is something else going on, right? And for a rabbi, that means, you know, that uh, the Jews are some central character in the cosmic drama. Um, and that is why people can't seem to turn away from them. Obviously, from a secular perspective, uh, you look at that and you cannot make such judgments. You cannot say that that is why it's happening. And then you search for other explanations for the phenomena. And then you end up in some of these conversations about, as you said, maybe it's because particular ideas have been very central in many different groups of people, not just Jews, that it emanated from this region. And so people are very focused on it. I do think that, uh, you know, depending on which part of the, which community you broach this conversation in, you'll get different explanations as to why people are so focused on Israel and the Middle East. There's absolutely an anti-Semitic obsession uh, with anything Jews do. And when you put them, you know, half the world's Jews in one place, they're going to be attracted to that place like a lightning rod and be obsessed with everything going on in it in a negative way and project all sorts of horrific things onto it, regardless of what legitimate criticisms the state there deserves. But at the same time, um, there are also a lot of people uh, who really like Jews for all sorts of different reasons and see them as God's chosen people um, and see them as uh, the sorts of people um, that if you bless them, I will bless you, right, in terms of the biblical language. And so they too care about Israel and they too are very, very focused on Israel for totally different reasons. And all of that added into one cauldron could be a very good explanation as to why news media networks constantly produce content about this place. Because the fact is, is that uh, I work in journalism and trust me, although they don't write things in order to get clicks a lot, and certainly not where I come from. Uh, that's how I can write about Jewish acapella, not knowing if it will get any clicks at all, because they're perfectly willing to take that chance, which is a real credit to the Atlantic. But that being said, of course, in the overall, right, journalism and journalistic outlets tend to cover what their readers want to read about. Um, and so when you're picking from the entire menu of world stuff that's going on geopolitically, well, you've probably noticed that a huge number of readers are interested in this. And if you didn't cover it, they'd get mad, right? Now, they might have positive, negative, or neutral reasons for being interested in the Middle East. But the fact is, they are, right, in a way that they're simply not interested in most other regions in the world. Um, and so media outlets respond to that demand by providing for that demand, which is why, as like you know, my friend Monty Friedman has written, there are more foreign correspondents like per capita in Israel than probably anywhere else in the world, right? Which is ridiculous, frankly, right? I, when you, I look at it as a news gathering perspective, because again, there isn't that much news there and it's not that consequential. Obviously, like wearing a historian's hat, it's such an interesting parallel. Like you go to the second century, Rome has more soldiers per capita in the land of Israel than anywhere else in the empire. They have the 6th Legion is there, the 10th Legion is there, and a third 
basically equivalent of another legion of auxiliary troops is there. Like it's bananas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, and that you could ask why were the Romans disproportionately focused on all of that stuff. So, you know, the, the, in this sense, the secular explanation I would give to the disproportionate focus is that, is this incredible demand, which comes from so many different sources. Um, and then the media says, well, our job is to actually inform the readers about the things that they're very, very interested in. Um, and so we will do so. Um, and then we can get into all sorts of different ways. And I don't think that this is the podcast for that, you know, about, because I do cover Israeli politics. I have, you know, profiled the current prime minister, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and how to do this well and how to do it worse and so on. It's a very fraught subject, but the the genesis of it, I think is just that lots of people for all sorts of reasons, um, and they may be hard-headed or they may be mystical, are very, 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 very concerned with what happens there. I want to shift towards culture because ultimately I want to talk about the specific stuff that you that you are doing now, which is new in your music, which is so fantastic. But preliminarily, I, I feel like a staple of right wing cultural criticism these days is attacking virtue signaling. Right. Would be the term. And a staple of left wing cultural criticism is attacking like cringe. Right. And maybe it's the contrarian in me. And look, I definitely agree that there are lots of bad forms of virtue signaling and bad forms of cringe, cringe that should be criticized. But I often find myself in the mood to like defend both virtue signaling and cultural things that are cringe. Like a good deal of the time, I feel like these are just codes for things that normal people like in an uncomplicated way. Like, like is Harry Potter cringe? I don't know. I mean, like, I just know I really enjoy those books. <laughs> so what do you think? Are normie cultural tastes and mores underrated? So, so sometimes my, my newsletter, not necessarily deliberately, has taken on the uh, the banner of the defense of the normie, not just in terms right. of culture, but in terms of politics, right, uh, as one of the few places that has been willing to entertain the possibility that Joe Biden is good at politics and that people might actually like him and that perhaps he understands the electorate and they like him, right, particularly with a Democratic electorate, more than the people you tend to see on Twitter saying they speak for the Democratic electorate. It's true also in the culture, which is to say that there are often sometimes uh, people who say we speak for the culture or purport to write about it or critique it, who I think sometimes are very disconnected uh, from the broader uh, community of cultural consumers. Now, that doesn't invalidate any of their judgments. Sometimes I'm part of that. There are things that people like that I think are really bad. I mean, like, I mean, you're not going to be, you know, surprising to say here that I have not really been... Uh, a fan of the Twilight franchise, and uh, I don't think it was a good thing for our society, right? Like that sort of stuff, right? I don't spend my time writing pieces about that, right? But I certainly think that there's a lot. I also, you know, I feel like a lot of the new Star Wars content that's been produced, a lot of it is extremely hit and miss, and some of it extremely miss. And so, like a lot of the critiques that, you know, high minded cultural critics make of this stuff, I completely agree with. Um, but I think in order to be, uh, and this circles back to what we discussed about before, to be a good critic, you have to understand the audience you're writing to. Um, and if a lot of your audience does enjoy certain popular things and your goal is to say, well, you shouldn't actually, uh, you should have a more complicated view of this. Or you should be more conflicted about it. Or it's not as good. And perhaps if we had more of stuff like this, the culture would get worse. You have to actually understand why people like it and then say to them, okay, I get that you appreciate this. And I accurately understand the culture's attitude towards this. But let me explain to you why I nonetheless think that we could do something else and something better. Um, and that will make you a so much better, more effective communicator, a more effective critic, and a more empathetic writer. And so what I am not there to defend normies' sensibilities, I'm de defending more actually caring about what normies think when you write to them and tell them that they should think differently. Because I'm sometimes a normie and sometimes I'm not. I think we all are like this. I don't think there's anyone who really fits into that box. And, you know, I just think that uh, the responsibility of intellectuals and writers is not just to write for each other. 
Uh, it's not just to write for in-group status, right? It's not just to write for their, you know, their Twitter mutuals or whatever. It's really to write for, you know, the wider culture and audience. And what I discovered in writing, these, making these arguments is there are some cultural critics who think, no, that's not my job, right? They genuinely believe, no, I write for other cultural critics and we're having this high-minded conversation among like-minded peers. And I always thought differently when I was doing cultural criticism. I was the movie's editor of my college paper. I thought I was writing for a broader uh, public and a broader conversation and, and trying in a very tiny infinitesimal way to sort of nudge the culture in what I felt was a better direction. But I guess if you don't feel that way, right, when you realize you have a totally different conception, you might do something different. Um, and I want to be honest, if, like it's fair to those people because I don't think that they're they're deluding themselves that they're doing something else. They're just doing something different uh, than sometimes than what I am doing. Yeah, so I, but I do think you understand this as a rabbi, right? You can give the same sermon five different ways, right? And four of them are the wrong way. Right. And one of them is the way that's going to resonate. You said the same ideas, but one of them is a success and four of them are a failure. And I think about all my articles in that terms. And I think about certainly when I'm making criticisms or I'm trying, like, say, for example, my audience, right, which comprises many Jews who care deeply about Israel. And often, uh, although they have complicated feelings or criticism of Israel, they are, you know, positively disposed towards it. And sometimes I will write a piece that is uh, very critical of certain trends in Israeli society, like the rise of far right racism. And people can look this particular stuff up in my newsletter. I feel responsibility when I write that, that the people, who come to it should actually be able to hear it, right? And write it in a way that they can actually, as opposed to saying the idiot troglodytes, how do you not see these horrible racists, you know, parading around in Israel, right? Like doing something like that isn't going to actually move the needle. It's not going to cause so much to rethink uh, because I haven't shown that I actually respect them as a person, as a thinker, as a moral actor. And so, I, you know, this is moving from sort of, you know, something more basic, like just something more complex, but like talking about moral issues, talking about deeply held political beliefs, uh, we can write in a way uh, that can reach people who don't always agree with us, as long as we sort of dignify them along the way. If someone knows Yai Rosenberg from Twitter, or someone knows Yai Rosenberg as as reporting on anti-Semitism, journalist for The Atlantic, how do you introduce them to Yai Rosenberg, recording artist, Jewish <laughs> Jewish recording artist? How do you make that? How do you make that introduction? You know, there isn't a seamless way to do it. Um, it, it it's, <laughs> it's sort of, but the thing is, is that you'd be surprised how many people in like, uh, whether it's journalism or politics or other interesting professions where you think this must be the totality of this person have remarkable, wonderful things that they do in addition. And sometimes what I like to do when I meet somebody and I mention that I do this music is then I ask them, so what's your music? What is the thing that you do, right? That brings you joy and helps you express some part of yourself that is otherwise not expressed. Uh, and you get fascinating answers. Um, and I think that, one way our discourse would be better is if we started seeing people more in that total way. Uh, because often they're just a little avatar on Twitter and they're a collection of opinions that we may or may not like. And we have strong opinions about them based on those opinions. We don't really see them as, you know, people who really love music or this guy who is, you know, really loves baseball or this person who has, you know, three kids, right? You, all of that stuff is abstracted away in the online conversation and it makes it harder for people to interact with each other as human beings in a way that already once you're face-to-face, it's much harder to like forget all those things. And it more naturally lends itself to more complex conversations. Whereas the online sometimes constricts the sort of grooves of our conversation. Sometimes that can be good, right? We talked about stand culture on TikTok being applied to the voice choir. It kept out certain negativity because there were, those were the grooves of the conversation. But say the grooves of Twitter politics mean that because you have the wrong opinion, you must be a horrible, evil person who has that wrong opinion on purpose, despite knowing it's wrong, and you're sharing it because you want to mislead other people into that opinion, right? Those are a whole bunch of assumptions that are often the default that we have, whether we realize it or not. And almost always, they're not true. Um, and it doesn't mean the person isn't egregiously wrong, but they're egregiously wrong in more complicated ways. And they're still human beings. Hot takes from Twitter's Yai Rosenberg. Very, 
still humans. <laughs> we set the bar so low that simply saying people are still humans on Twitter qualifies as moral insight. One of the pieces that I'm most proud of in the newsletter is one, again, on a more obscure topic that you might think isn't of interest to you, but actually I think had a real profound point to make, which was a piece where I investigated the appearance of this uh, Orthodox Jewish character cameo on Firefly, the cult science fiction show by Joss Whedon. It's a great piece. Um, and you guys can look this one up. It's not a hard read. And it talks about how like the characters in one episode in the show that only lasted for one season, but then became such a cult hit that they got a movie anyway. And like in one of the last episodes of the show, they go to visit a space post office. And it turns out the space post office man is an Orthodox Jew. He's wearing a nice big yarmulke. And he, if you look really carefully, he's wearing tzitzit, the ritual fringes that Orthodox Jewish men wear. It's like a lot of attention to just getting this character just right. He's not a stereotype. And it's never mentioned that he's Jewish. He never says anything Jewish. Right. Um, and the characters don't interact with him any differently because he's Jewish. They just treat him like anybody else. And he's just like, oh, yeah, it's obvious there are Jews in this world in the future, which is, I think, in his own way, a very optimistic statement. Right. And I spent eight, whatever, like, I don't know, seven, eight years, maybe longer, trying to investigate why the writers decided to put this character in the show. What did the actor think he was doing when he played this? Because the actor who played it was not Jewish. Yeah. Right. And the thing about that piece, I eventually did find out how the actor got the role and I did find out why they put him in and I did all that. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done with the piece when I was going to publish it. Um, and then I figured, well, okay, but I've been working on this piece for many years and I interviewed the actor who played the guy years and years ago. So I thought I should look him up and, you know, just to see, to close the loop on the piece, what happened to Al Pugliese, this, you know, noted character actor who played the Jewish postman despite not being a Jew and did such a good job of it. And so... When I interviewed him, he had told me that he was a uh, a Christian who was looking into the Hebraic roots of the Christian faith. Um, and so he had actually been studying Hebrew with a rabbi, and he had a yarmulke and various other rituals. Obviously, he knew what a Jew should look like. So when he went wow. to the audition, he outcompeted some actual Jews um, because he <laughs> knew what it was supposed to look like authentically. Um, and on set, people were constantly asking, would your character do this? And he's like, you don't understand. I'm not Jewish. I'm just playing one on your show, right? But he had totally fooled them and he would fool you if you watched it. And it was a beautiful sort of thing. And he knew a lot. I had a long conversation with him and he really knew a tremendous amount about Jewish history, Jewish texts. And he really did know Hebrew. Um, and like he put, and he didn't, he wasn't doing this in order to try to say, convert me uh, to Christianity. He was trying to be a better Christian. And I thought that was really, really powerful and really beautiful. And that was the story. And then I look him up and I find that he had passed away very recently. And I find that he had passed away from COVID. And you dig a little deeper onto the social media feeds and you discover that he wasn't vaccinated and that he was sharing certain conspiracy theories about what the vaccines were supposed to do and, you know, microchips, like it's one of the crazier stuff, right? And about the elite trying to control people beyond, you know, just questions and skepticism about the medical establishment, which is understandable given what's happened in the process of understanding COVID. But like, you know, the conspiratorial stuff. So there is a version, again, in the online grooves of conversation, I'm supposed to like, mentioned that and say he was one of the bad ones, right? He was a bad person. But here's the rest of the story that you heard, right? And you can see that he wasn't a bad person. He was a good person. He was a deeply empathetic human being who went out of his way to understand people who were different than him and did it so well that he actually embodied someone from a totally different background that he probably never met any of those people growing up, but he came to know them through his pure empathy and curiosity. And all of that is still true, even if this other part is also true, right? And even if he voted for someone that you hate and he was wrong to do that. Right. And so I put that at the end and I said, but does it really change who he was as a human being? Does it really change your reaction to this person as a person? And I think it didn't. I think most people read that and said, oh, yeah, you know, we're all just as he was able to show how people see themselves in someone completely different than themselves. We should be able to see ourselves in him. And like that is what good writing can do. Right. And that is what we lack 
right, in our online discourse. We act in our society right now. So that seems like a piece that's coming out of left field, but I think the point really mattered. And that's, that's the sort of thing that I'd like to see more of. I'd like to see more of it for me. It's not easy to write those stories. It's not easy to, to find those stories. You know, but I do think that uh, those are the stories that stay with you. I think it's also a story that's impossible to tell with the kind of like deep cultural, even religious specificity that we were talking about earlier. Like you couldn't do a Brady Bunch episode on that. So I actually want to transition right from there to your journey as a as a recording musician. So if you've been a reader of Deep Shtetl, you'll know that, I mean, you, you, you mentioned it earlier, you are influenced both by acapella music, Celtic music, Celtic acapella music, one per one per album. How would you describe your the the journey of your kind of musical influences? Like, where what are you drawing from, and how do you bake that into your music? So first, it just starts with my uh, my family history, which is that my yeah. grandfather uh, was a Hasidic composer of some note. They still sing his songs today. He composed his most famous composition, uh, something called Shiragula, Song of Redemption, not the Bob Marley song. Right. No, exactly. You know, the Jewish redemption <laughs> song. Right, exactly right. And uh, he's this Holocaust orphan living in Shanghai with a bunch of other yeshiva students who managed to escape Poland and Europe with the help of a righteous uh, Japanese diplomat named Sugihara, who, against his government orders, gave a whole bunch of visas to thousands of Jews and helped them to escape the wow. war. Um, and so he, you know, was in the, you know, in Shanghai for much of the war. Then eventually he and others make their way to the United States. And that's how you get me. Uh, but while he was in Shanghai, he composed this song, uh, which was a sort of song of encouragement uh, for the, the Hasidim who were there. He didn't write the words. He wrote the melody because the words were a letter that was sent of encouragement to them. And it meant a lot to them. But back then you didn't have phones. How do you share this and keep it stored, right? You put it to music so everyone remembers it. And they still sing the song. You can look it up and you can find different renditions of it. One day, I hope to do my own. So it starts with that, right? And it trickles down through the family, through my father and so on. I always had melodies popping into my head, sort of as he described uh, earlier uh, with Little Wayne, um, who is you know, a vastly more talented uh, example of this. But, you know, people think, how do you do this? Often it just comes. Um, it just arrives. It's been sitting there and the, they take time. Right. And so uh, some of these songs were composed over, you know, five year spans where the low part, you know, or the, you know, the verses come to me in you know college. And then five years later, I finally have the right chorus that goes with it. And so and then in terms of like influences by music itself, right, from other artists, right, Jewish, right, there are Jewish artists that will mean nothing to some people listening and everything to other people listening. Well, as we found out in the last couple of weeks, yeah, meaning Jewish references that may mean nothing to anybody will can often be real bangers. So <laughs> exactly, because you may find the music beautiful, right? So there's, you know, Shashelis and Debakus by A.B. Rotenberg. Uh, so, you know, people like that, Kol Achai, and then sort of more pop stuff where you have the Chevra and Menucha, right? And the sort of the very tight harmonies that they use for those. Um, but then also, you know, Irish and uh, Celtic folk music, right? So when you talk about, you know, contemporary singers, there's a group called the High Kings, which I can't recommend enough, who take, do sort of what I try to do, which is take traditionals and turn them into more modern sounding, but still authentic renditions of the songs. And they're doing it with Irish folk music, uh, you know, ballads and uh, jigs and all that. Um, and I'm doing it, of course, with uh, Shabbat songs, songs you sing on the Sabbath and from the prayers that you do on the Sabbath. And so then there's, you know, people who are influenced by this in the cinematic music world, like James Horner, um, who did, people will know, Titanic, nice. um, among others, a beautiful mind, won many, many awards, uh, tragically passed before his time in a plane crash. I think one of the greats, him, you know, of course, in John Williams, but I would say he was very influenced by Celtic and folk uh, styles that influenced me. But it's not that I sit there and say, okay, 
uh, I'm going to make a song in the style of this person or in this style. What happens is, is that a song comes to me, like I said, and then I discover afterwards, once we've already recorded it, someone says, oh, that sounds like a Celtic version of L'Chad Odin. And I listen to it, I'm like, you're absolutely right. Now, did I do it on purpose? No. But of course, the music that I compose ends up sounding like the music that I listen to, right? It sounds like the music that makes up my world. Um, and so then I can reverse engineer a lot of these influences without deliberately doing anything like that. Um, and it's really amazing. It's amazing to see how this sort of stuff works. And you know, that's one of the beautiful things about music, which is that it's this sort of universal language that can be transmuted from you know, an Irish folk uh, you know, traditional into a more modern version into this Jewish kid who listens to it and then who has been influenced by all these other Jewish artists and then, you know, spits out a Shabbat song that people then sing in synagogue. And that's one of the big reasons I made the album, which is that, you know, you, as guys probably know from this podcast, lots of Jews out there and a lot of them disagree on many, many things. Uh, but one of the things that they can do, can do together often is sing, is music. A lot of the tunes transcend communal divides. They transcend denominations. They transcend ideologies. You can walk into, you know, a reform synagogue and Orthodox synagogue, and they both have some of the same tunes. They might not know that they do, uh, but they do. Um, and like, so music in this way, uh, just like Hebrew, can be a universal language uh, that can, you know, transcend some of these divides. And so my hope was, uh, especially in doing songs for the Sabbath, which are more familiar to more Jews, right? Whether it's like a Shalom Aleichem or things like that, that it would give people something to share. Uh, because if there's a theme, you might be sensing it here when I'm talking about it in my journalism and talking about it in my music. There's this common theme of trying to show people that we share more in common than we realize and find ways to communicate each other, even when we, with each other, even when we don't uh, share all the same values or all the same beliefs. So my hottest take on your album, Az Yashir, Songs for Shabbos, is that there's like a real punk sensibility to it. And what I mean by that is that, not like sort of um, sonically speaking, but I mean in the sense of Jewish music, particularly in Israel, but outside this, the land of Israel as well, has had this real kind of cultural efflorescence in the last, I'd say, you know, decade probably, maybe a little bit less, but really the last decade this hyper creativity in lyricism, drawing upon, you know, the roots of some pretty exciting and esoteric liturgical poetry, old rabbinical exegesis. Uh, but one thing that it is that it has lost, I think, is singability, particularly because so much of the context for Jewish music outside of listening on Spotify are times when you're not allowed to use electronics if you're from a, you know, a, tr a, a traditional community, or even if you're not, you know, you're in, in places that aren't making use of, of electronics or musical instruments in certain contexts. So whether it's around the Shabbos table, whether it's on a holiday or in a synagogue or what have you, or if, you know, or if it's just kind of like a, an informal gathering of people just sitting around singing together, um, a hallmark of a lot of Jewish music, you know, two to four or five or six or maybe even seven now decades ago, and certainly long before that as well, was singability. And your album really, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is very self-consciously singable. And in that respect, I really see it as like a return to the roots of Jewish music. Do, did you think about that at all as you were producing this? And how do you think about the context of your album? Your, how do you think about your album in the context, rather, of contemporary Jewish music? 
Yeah. I mean, I thought about every track being singable. That was one of the core overriding considerations of the album, which is if you're going to make an album of songs for people to sing on the Sabbath, they should actually be able to sing them. It's the choice of the kind of chords you choose, more complex versus sometimes more singable. Sometimes it has to do with the key in which I sing the song. There are some tracks on the album where I could have sung it in a higher key because I have a tenor voice, but I purposely chose to pitch it down uh, because more people would be able to hear themselves slotting into the song congregationally. Uh, if they heard it in that key. And so not every song adheres to these rules. And in certain ones, I'll break one of them deliberately because you want some variety on the album or just the song itself sounds so much better that particular way. Um, But almost all the songs are very easy to pick up and sing. uh, And that is by design. And to me, I feel like that is a really important kind of niche that, uh, that sometimes isn't as filled today because you have some of these incredibly beautiful, complex songs that may not be so easy for uh, you know, the average person to sing. I remember distinctly when I was in high school and Ari and I, uh, we overlapped in high school, you know, we were years apart, but we went to the same high school and true to type, I read a, you know, a, a magazine, right. Uh, that had an arts and culture section that was quite serious. And we reviewed, uh, you know, Jewish music albums and non-Jewish music albums. Uh, and we reviewed a new album by one of the biggest stars in Jewish music at the time. He was a little bit newer, but he was at the beginning of the stardom, Yaakov Shweki. And he had a song uh, called Imesh Kachich, which is, you know, the song about if I forget the Jerusalem, my, 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 you know, my right hand wither and so on. It's a very uh, popular song because Jews uh, sing those words at weddings. And so he had a version of it that was absolutely beautiful that continues to be sung at weddings to this day by wedding singers. Wedding singers love this song. The average person, on the other hand, it's a little more complicated. Uh, so we reviewed the album and the, per- the reviewer wrote, you can add his imesh kachich to you know, your, your Shabbat lineup to sing around the table. And someone wrote a letter in back saying, it's a great review, right? A lot of really good points, but I want to make one correction, which is you can't add this song uh, into uh, your Shabbat rotation because although Shabbat Shweki can sing it quite well, Normal people can't because it has a giant <laughs> octave jump. Those were the kind of controversies we courted in high school. Like, perfect. I think we once did this in college and we were singing it and we started it just a little too high on a key. And by the time you get to the high part, it's just disaster. And like someone just had to yell out abort song, right? And that was it. <laughs> There's kind of like this awkward collective moment where we all sort of like collectively agree to surrender, you know, and just like change the key. <laughs> and so... I was not going to do those. It's not that I don't love those. And in fact, some of those can show off the voice of the singer more, right? And that there's a certain place for that as well. But that is not really how uh, this album is designed because that's not its purpose. Right now, down the line, I'm sure I'll do some songs like that too. But I do think that it's really, really important that we... Uh, we have things that we can share. And if we can share them, that means including all vocal types, right? And that means that you can listen to this album and you can find yourself humming along and singing along, uh, no matter what, uh, whether you're a bass, tenor, or baritone, whether you're particularly tuneful or not. Um, And I hope, I hope that most of the songs achieve that. Uh, last question is just about plugs. You're doing so many amazing things. Deep Shtetl is amazing. Everyone should subscribe. It's so worth it. And the clip at which you're putting out material is really impressive. So it's it's repays every penny, not only on quality, although it does that also, but also on quantity. You put out this album. You're writing regular pieces for The Atlantic. Uh, what's next? Like, what's what's another cool thing that you're working on now that you could share a little bit about? Well, so I have a rule, uh, which is that I can only do one side creative project at a time beyond my regular job. And so, uh, you, know, I, you know, you have to be a little disciplined about that. And so 
this year, it was this album, right? The album took seven years, but it was intensively worked on this last year. Um, and now the album is done. Last year, it was a video series I did uh, with a company called Open Door Media, which is called Anti-Semitism Explained. Uh, their title, not mine. They have tremendous faith in my abilities. I had less so. But it is a uh, six-video uh, series, um, which is really beautifully done, that I scripted um, in its entirety. And I also designed the visuals, you know, with with actual studio help. Just answering basic questions that people have about anti-Semitism. If you've listened to this uh, podcast and you felt, oh, he explained some questions well, or he broke some issues down well, well, you may find this valuable for understanding anti-Jewish prejudice. You can find that on YouTube. Um, so the question is, though, those were the last two years. What's the next year? Probably a book. Hey, now we're talking. I love it. And uh, yeah, so I don't want to say too much, but it will be probably about healthier ways we can engage with technologies, particularly the internet rather than simply railing ineffectually against the things they do to our society or hoping that, say, governments or corporations will step in and save us. Um, what are things that we ourselves can do in our lives to more consciously use technology rather than be used by it? And so that's a very tall order. And I think, you know, it will be of interest to people on this podcast because one of the key things I want to do is to show that while these seem like new problems, they're not as new as they seem. And a lot of these questions have come up in other contexts in different wisdom and faith traditions. And we can draw on those to help sort of dig our way out of them today. I absolutely love this. So up my alley. Uh, amen. Yair, thank you so much for being here. This is a total blast. Thank you for having me. One of the hallmarks of the Hebrew Bible is that high-low move. Literarily, the Bible takes us on a journey from 30,000 feet to a zoomed-in close-up shot and back out again. So you have the cosmic drama of creation, and then a moment later, the intimacy of dramatic tension between two siblings. You have the construction and implosion of an entire empire, Babel, and the journey into the unknown of a single couple, Abraham and Sarah. Or take different visions of the redemption. You have Isaiah's panned-out focus on the end of war between nations, and then you have Jeremiah's zoomed-in shot of a bride and groom dancing in the streets of a rejuvenated Jerusalem. This contrast is the stuff of which great theology is made. It's the stuff of which great art is made. It's even the stuff of which great politics is made. And it's so amazing to see all of that, that generosity of spirit and that sensibility of high-low come together in the work of someone like Yair. And it should be such a source of encouragement for all of us to bring that sensibility, that sense of the eternal, the infinite, and that sensitivity to the intimate, the particular, to transforming both our lives, our loves, and relationships, and our entire society and the world as a whole for the better. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, Please go ahead, be awesome, head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else to get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. 
For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 